Paul says in Ephesians 1.4, Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we will be holy and blameless before Him. Let's pray. Holy Father, we ask that You be with us now through Your Son and by Your Spirit. Be with preacher and be with those who are hearing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So last time we were together, saints, we looked at union with Christ and um, really a theological and historical survey of union with Christ, what our Reformed tradition has said concerning union with Christ, but also what the Bible says concerning union with Christ. So today we're going to get into the meat of union with Christ and speak of our union with Christ from all eternity. Our union with Christ from all eternity. That is to say that the elect and uh, Christ, in a mysterious way, were united. Were united. Before I do that, though, I want to have a, just a brief uh, word on election. A brief word on election and the doctrine of election. Election is no doubt something that uh, causes many Christians, once they hear upon the word of election, uh, some sort of hiccup because um, of the things that it may imply concerning God. So, for instance, when I say uh, that the Bible says that it is God who chooses some to be saved and some to be damned, uh, it does create some sort of shock uh, for a lot of Christians. And I don't want you, and I don't know if uh, you know the doctrine of election well or not, so I don't want to speak about election and our election in Christ uh, without this um, dilemma hanging over your head, which might be this. When I say that God chooses some to be saved and others to be damned, um, you might think, well, what does that have to do with, how does that do justice to the fairness of God? Is it not fair um, that God should choose all rather than choose some to be saved? Uh, well, we can, we can answer that uh, a myriad of different ways. One could be, well, uh, God choosing some to be saved and not others highlights fully, and it's more fitting uh, that God does so to highlight all of who he is. So in God electing some to be saved and not others, it highlights the justice of God uh, and things like that. Um, we can talk about how it's also, uh, this is more of a naughty argument, it's for the good of the creature for them not to be saved. Um, and uh, that's something actually I learned recently, but um, if you have qu- uh, questions on that, ask me answer, uh, because it's a very great argument. Um, but saints, for those who say, well... Um, this this thing about God electing some to be saved and some to be damned, uh, it just doesn't sit well with me. Consider the words of Paul in Romans 9, verse 14 through 18 says, What shall we say then? Is there no injustice with God? Is there far from it? For he says to Moses, I have mercy on whomever I have mercy, and I will show compassion to whomever I show compassion. So then it does not depend on the person who wants it, nor the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very reason I raised you up in order to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the earth. So then he who has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. <clears throat> Saints, why does God do what he does? Because he's God. God can do whatever he wants. If God chooses some to be saved, then he chooses some to be saved. If God chose to save all, he would save all. If God chose to save none, he would save none. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, the Bible tells us that there are some that God has chosen to save from all eternity. Which speaks to what we want to talk about this evening, and that is, the elect have a union with Christ from all eternity. From all eternity. When theologians speak of union with Christ, 
they usually speak of it in a threefold manner. First, there's legal or decretal union. That's the union that we have with Christ in eternity. Then there's a vital union. That's the union that you are, you have now with Christ. And then also there's a spiritual slash mystical union. That's also the union that you have with Christ right now. Today we'll consider the first aspect of union with Christ, and that is our legal or decretal union. As I said last Sunday evening, God's redemptive plan for humanity uh, began long before humanity came into existence. Long before humanity came into existence. God's redemptive plan, or I should say purpose, uh, for humanity began long before the eternal Son assumed flesh, long before Adam fell, and long before the creation of the world. But God's redemptive purpose was set in the mysterious ages of eternity when we, the elect, if you are believers in Christ, were legally, federally, and by way of decree, united to Jesus Christ. Again, we were legally, federally, and by way of decree, that last one is the big one, united to Jesus Christ. Now, I I noticed, saints, I... I threw out three terms for you uh, to consider when we are describing our union with Christ from eternity. I said there's legal, there's a federal, and also a decretal union. A.W. Pink says this. This is, um, this is uh, uh, which determined the title federal union. The elect had not only a mystical union with Christ in the womb of God's decrees, but they had an actual oneness together in the sight of divine law. That oneness had been variously uh, designated by different writers. Covenant union, legal union, representative union, federal union, all which signify much the same. The grand point to be apprehended here is this, and this is the grand point of me telling you these various uh, titles of union, that Christ and his people were one in divine election. Christ and his people, you were one in eternity in divine election. A.W. Pink goes on and says, This federal oneness which exists between Christ and the elect from everlasting means that they are one in a legal sense. Or to state it more simply, Christ and his people were looked at as one by the eyes of the law, as a surety and a debtor are one. So according to Pink, Christ and the elect were united from all eternity. So from all eternity, and eternity is not a It's not necessarily a time thing. We don't know what eternity is, but we know that it's somewhere in the past that our union with Christ was a likened to a surety and a debtor. Again, if you're taking notes, our our union with Christ in eternity is a likened to a surety is to a debtor. Now, what is a surety? This is an older way of speaking about Christ and his redemptive work. Many older Reformed theologians love to talk about Christ as surety. A surety is one who is liable for the debt which the other has contracted and his payment is held as the payment of the debtor. Again, a surety is one who is liable for the debt which the other has contracted and his payment is held as the payment of the debtor. So Jesus Christ then places himself um, or rather places on himself our debt. That's simply what a surety is. He places upon himself our debt. But not just in a way, of, not just in this way, that I'm going to pay what they owe. But also, he takes the debt as if it was his own, as well as the consequences if the debt is not paid. 
So it's not just, I'm going to pay what they owe, but it's a, I will take their debt as if it's mine, and all of the consequences of them, of me, of, of them not paying the debt will be placed upon me, uh, myself. So Christ unites himself with his people by doing what, saints? By taking ownership of our debt to God. That's a marvelous truth. He takes ownership of our sin, although he never sinned. He takes ownership of our punishment and says, I will face the consequences of their sin debt to you. So what does he do? He, he dies. That is what we owe to God, right? Among other things. John Gill explains, well, Christ and they, the elect, are one in the eye of the law, as the bondsman and debtor are one in a legal sense. So that if one pays, if one of them pays the debt bound for, it is the same as if the other did. So Jesus Christ, in his life, death, and resurrection, he does for us, saints, what we could not do for ourselves, as you've heard many times. But when he does it, it is as if we did it. So when Christ pays our debt for us, it is as if we are paying our own debt. John Owen says, The Lord Christ undertook to be surety of the new covenant in behalf of the church, and thereon tendered himself unto God to do and suffer for them in their stead and on their behalf. And this is where the surety comes in. Whatever was required. Whatever was required to pay the debt, I will do it. And I will face the consequences as well. That they may be sanctified and saved. <clears throat> but along this definition of surety, um, this definition doesn't just mean that Christ makes our debt his own, which is already glorious. But consider what the writer of the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews 7.22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. That word guarantor uh, could be rendered as surety. And what that means, saints, is Christ not only stands in the place of us, but everything he will win for us will undoubtedly come to pass. Again, Christ does not just take our debt for us because he has the money set aside, but also everything that he will win for us will undoubtedly come to pass. Will undoubtedly come to pass. Now, unless, I don't know, someone... Unless the one that's your surety is like Bill Gates. Um, we can't say that with others who say, I'll be your surety. Right? If someone says, I'll pay your debt for you, there might be things that come in the way of them paying off that debt that you owe. They might run out of money. They may pass away. Other things may happen. But with regard to Christ, he says that I will pay off their debt no matter what. No matter what. Their debt will be paid for. Andrew Murray says, there is an assurance of the sufficiency of Christ's finished redemption. So the premise is there's an assurance of, of Christ and how his work is sufficient for us in redemption. All that was needed to put away sin, to free us entirely and forever from its power, has been accomplished by Christ. His blood and death, his resurrection and ascension has taken us out of the power of the world and transplanted us into a new life in the power of the heavenly world. All of this is a divine reality. Christ is surety that the divine righteousness and divine acceptance, that all sufficient divine grace and strength are ever ours. He is our surety that all these things can and will be communicated to us in an unbroken continuance. We can say Christ as our surety 
as Christ is our surety, we can be sure that his work of being our federal head will be, um, will be that uh, it will not fail like the first man, Adam. So we see that in eternity, the eternal son is united to us by way of surety. He is our legal representative. However, when we say that Christ is our legal representative from eternity, we must view this in light and through the lens of God's decree. And this is where we're going to make a lot, not a lot, but some distinctions here. When we say that Christ is our legal representative, if you're taking notes from eternity, we must view this by way of God's decree. Now, what is God's decree? In simple terms, God, God's decree is God's eternal, unchanging, and wise plan or purpose. Again, God's decree, if I say decree, just think of God's unchanging purposes, the things that are going to happen in time. So how does our union with Christ from eternity to relate to God's decree? How does our us being united to Christ in eternity relate to the purposes and plans of God in time and space? What do we mean then? <clears throat> or what do I mean when I say our union with Christ from eternity must be viewed through the lens of God's decree? When theologians say, um, and this is important to take note of here, saints, when theologians say we are united to Christ by way of decree, they're doing something in order for them to avoid heresy and error. There's something that, um, that they're saying that is to be avoided, but also to do justice to the biblical witness of Scripture to who we are before we place our faith in Christ. Now, the first error, or the error that theologians are trying to guard against, is this. It's a serious error. It's called eternal justification. Eternal justification. And the logic of this is, the logic behind the, the error is this. Ephesians 1-4 says this, chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's the text that, are, that they're wrestling with. Okay, so here's the logic. Since we were chosen in Christ from eternity, from all eternity, since we were loved in Christ from all eternity, then that must mean that we were justified or have been saved from all eternity. There's the logic. Again, since we are chosen in Christ and we are not damned, then that must mean that we were saved from all eternity. This is eternal justification. Okay? But saints, this conclusion does direct violation to Holy Scripture, especially how one attains justification and the benefits of Jesus Christ. And here again, where we must make distinctions, when we are speaking of our union with Christ, not only in eternity, but also in time and space. So, for now, until uh, we close, I'm going to argue that in eternity, the, uni- the elect were united to Christ by way of decree, and upon birth, the elect were united to Adam. So what I'm really trying to do is trying to deal with the biblical data of Scripture that speaks of us being united to Christ in a way that moves us away from us being eternally saved. Because it's very easy for us to say, well, I'm elect, then that must mean from all eternity I was saved. <clears throat> we don't want to think that way. Let's first look at how the elect were united to Christ by way of decree. Ezekiel 36, 26-27 says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of, a heart of, move the stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and bring it about that you walk in my statues, and are careful, 
and follow my ordinances. When theologians say in eternity, the elect were united to Christ by way of God's decree, what they mean is this, and here's important to note, from eternity, the relationship between Christ and the elect exists, there is a real relationship, only in the intention and will of God. Again, the relationship between Christ and the elect, a real relationship, it exists only in the will and intention of God, but does not exist as an actual union. As an actual union. This is why we must describe our relationship with Christ in eternity as a decretal union. That is to say, from eternity, the elect have a right to salvation and union with Christ, but not a present possession of salvation. So in eternity, saints, you have a right to salvation, but you don't have a present possession of salvation. Because if you had a present possession of salvation from all eternity, you would be saved. So you have a right to be saved, but you do not have possession of salvation. An example may help to clarify. Let's say a father has left his son, uh, left his son his estate. When the father passes away, the son inherits the father's estate. Now, until the father passes away, the son only has a right to the father's estate. But until the father passes away, the son does not actually have a present possession of the estate. Uh, for example, and my nieces and nephew are here now, so I'll speak of my, my other nephew. There is a gift that I'm going to get my nephew Nazareth. Don't tell, I won't say the gift because you'll probably tell him, but there is a big gift that I'm going to get, get him. Depending on conditions or whatever, Nazareth has a right to the gift, but he doesn't have a possession of the gift. It is not until I hand him the gift and it is his, he actually has a possession of it. Now, of course, there are things that might get in the way of me getting him the gift. I may die. I may lose my name. Uh, sorry, Leela. I may not have no more money. Um, things might happen, right? Um, but with respect to Christ then, and this is where the beauty of Christ being our surety comes into play, there is no doubt that he will win for us salvation. There is no doubt that that decretal union that exists in eternity will be knit together in time and space by the Spirit. So again, we have a right uh, in all eternity to salvation, but we are not actually saved. So in eternity, again, saints, you have a right to be saved, but you are not actually saved yet. You have a right to salvation, but you're not actually a present possessor of salvation. Because if you were, then you would not need to be saved and, and repent and all the other things. So we can say then, our union with Christ, there is a real union, but it only exists in the mind and intention of God. From all eternity, it was God's will to unite us to Christ, but we are not yet actually united to Jesus Christ. Francis Turretin says, although we do not, we do not deny that our justification was decreed even before eternity. So he says, we don't deny that our justification was declared from eternity past. Still we do not think that justification itself can be called eternal. The, the decree of justification, here's a important distinction here. The decree of justification is one thing. Justification itself, another. So, uh, God's decree to, to justify us is one thing, but God actually really justifying us is another thing. 
the will or decree to justify certain persons is indeed eternal and precedes faith itself. But actual justification takes place in time and follows faith. So there is a condition upon your justification. The condition is faith. What Churchill is doing, saints, is something that I think many theologians don't do, is he is distinguishing between God's eternal purpose, that is, those things that God has planned to happen, or purpose to happen, from his mighty act of power, that is, those things which God planned or purposed to happen, to happen in time. Again, so there's a difference between God purposing something in eternity, and then that thing that he purposed happening in time and space. There's a difference. You know this well. You plan to go to In-N-Out. Well, there's a difference between you planning to go to In-N-Out and you actually going to In-N-Out. This is what Tertian is saying here. There's a difference between God's decree, what he purposes, and the outworking of that decree in time and space. So to sum up this point, the elect are united to Christ, but only in the purpose and decree of God. We are not yet united to Christ in the way that we are now. Now let's look at our, our relationship to Christ upon conception. Well then, what about when we are born? Since we are elect, since God has loved us in such a way that He's given to us His Son, since He's decreed our salvation, what about the elect when they are born? When the elect are born, can we say that they are, uni- they are united to Christ and thereby saved? So, at the moment of conception, if you are elect, let's say you in the womb of your mom when you're you know, a zygote or whatever, are you saved? Are you saved? The salvation happened upon conception. And the answer, saints, is no. Although you are elect, you are not born saved. Although you are elect, you are not born saved. Consider what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 to 12 say. <clears throat> Therefore, remember that previously you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision, by so called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ excluded from the people of Israel and the strangers of the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So according to Paul, once one is born, they inherit Adam's guilt and under Adam's headship. Now notice, saints, in heaven, or rather in eternity, you are not under Adam's federal headship. You're not a sinner, per se, in eternity. Because Adam has not yet sinned yet. Nor are you actually united to Christ in the way that you are now. You're united to Christ by way of decree, but not actually united to him. And also in eternity, you're not actually united to Adam. But the moment of conception is when you're united to Adam. The moment of conception is when you are placed under Adam's federal headship. So Paul says here that upon birth, man inherits Adam's guilt and are under Adam's headship. We are separated from Christ. Once we are born, whether non-elect or elect, all people are defined as being dead in trespasses and sins. Elect or non-elect. So yes, while we can say that prior to the cross, the elect were ordained to eternal life, God's decree to save the elect doesn't change their condition once they are born. That's important to note. Again, God's purpose and what happens in time are a little bit, we must distinguish. Again, although we were ordained to eternal life, the God's elect. God's decree to save us does not change our condition once we are born. We are still born sinners in need of a Savior. Elect, non-elect. 
No elect person is born sinless. No elect has born already united to Jesus Christ and no need of salvation. In time and space, when we are born, we are united to Adam. That is to say, we are under Adam's federal headship. He needs our representative. It's not like when, I heard this great example, when you were in high school and the army person came up to you and said, hey, you want to enlist? And maybe you enlisted, maybe you didn't. But you had a choice whether you wanted to fight for the U.S. or you didn't. Well, we don't get that choice when we are born. When we are born, they don't say, you want to fight for God's army or you want to fight for Satan's. As soon as you are conceived, you are already enlisted as a soldier in Satan's army. Whether you're elect or not elect. You are already fighting against God. The elect are. So we don't have a, uh, a privilege to choose which side we want to be on. Even if you are elect. So then how does this work then in relation to Christ's saving work? And we're almost coming to a close. One theologian says, at the time of Christ's death, Christ and the elect are one mystical person. And notice the distinction he makes here. Not because the Spirit has already knit them together, but only in the intention of God. As Christ died, God knew for whom he was dying, and so counted their sin to Christ as though they were already one person. Yet only at the point of faith are the elect inserted into Christ's mystical body. So, over 2,000 years ago, although Adam was your federal head, right? Let's say you were born. Although Adam was your federal head, or you had no federal head, you were not a sinner. Christ was living, dying, and rising as if you were a sinner. And your sin was transferred to Him, His righteousness transferred to you, so that when you believe upon Christ, that which He merited for you over 2,000 years ago is given to you. That's the work of redemption. In a nutshell. How can we be united to Christ? How do we go from being united to Adam to be united to Jesus Christ? This is the scandal of the gospel. This is where the great news of the gospel comes into play. In eternity, the elect are chosen in Christ. Christ is the elect surety. The purpose of the triune God is to save the people for themselves. Sees itself in time and space over 2,000 years ago in the incarnation of the eternal son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, as our eternal surety and representative, doesn't just purpose that he will win for us salvation, but rather, without ever ceasing to be God, becomes man and actually really merits for us eternal life. Christ doesn't just say, I will do this for them, but he actually does it for us. He comes down, he lives, dies, rises, and ascends for us. So that when we are born, friends, Although we are united to Adam, and although we are covered in head to foot with sin, we don't have to earn our way to heaven. Because Christ is surety. Christ has paid the penalty for us. But rather, we must believe. How are we united to Christ? We must believe in the one who has opened the gates of paradise for us. So then how are we united to Christ? How does that union with Christ that we had in eternity with Him, by the way of God's will and intention, become actualized and a reality? Paul tells us in Romans 10.9, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. How do you, how are you engrafted into Christ? How are you united to Christ? The Word of God says, by faith. 
by faith. That union that we had, you had with God in eternity past is actualized. Where the Spirit then unites you to Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in Colossians 1.13, For he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So in redemption, God, he's doing a transferring of kingdoms. He takes you out of Adam's federal headship. He places you into Christ. So even though you did not see what happened over 2,000 years ago, you can be sure that it did happen. Because over 2,000 years ago, in the present, what happened is given to you. We can believe upon, when we believe upon Christ by faith, that union that we had with our Lord by way of God's decree is fully realized. But the Spirit unites us to Christ, and Christ and His church then become one mystical person. So you see that that mysterious union that we had in Christ by way of God's decree any time in eternity past is then brought together, and as the Spirit does, He knits you together with Christ, and He fully actualizes the love that Christ had for you from all eternity. So saints, if you ever question the promises of God, if you are questioning um, whether or not God's purposes and time will come about, consider your election. Consider that you were once far off, but the Spirit has brought you near to Christ. That union that you had with Christ was brought near. Uh, and because we can believe that Christ is our surety, uh, we can trust that even now we are united to Him in a mysterious and mystical way. So saints, next Sunday, or actually in two, in two weeks, we're going to look at the second aspect of our union with Christ, and that is the vital union that we have, where Christ is our life, and He and uh, and uh, and He is He is our life, and we are His life. Let's pray.